James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 2. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. So now James is taking aim at those people who have lived their lives, patting their own nests, accumulating wealth, thinking that that's their security. And this, I don't believe, is an indictment towards everybody who has money, rather those who put their trust in money. In other words, it's not that they have money, it's that their money has them. And there appears to be a prohibition here for laying up treasure in the last days. In Matthew 6, 20, Jesus says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So apparently their love of money was something that had its claws in them. And as that famous verse in 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs or sorrows. So James is saying, look, you wealthy people, you need to wake up and you need to understand that your time is short. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So in addition to their love of money, now we find out that he is addressing those who have ripped off their laborers. These people apparently think that being believers or going to church blinds God's eyes to the fraudulent and evil way they have dealt with their employees so they can get more money. And one thing that we as believers don't want, and I know this one very well by experience, is giving another believer a right to petition God against you. So if you have a godly spouse and you're being really difficult, just understand that they can say, you know, Lord, would you get their attention? And God's like, oh, sure, I would love to do that. God listens to those who have his ear, and a child of God, no matter who you are, has the ear of God. And God is not like a creditor who simply calls you and harasses you until the debt is paid. God can do subtle things that really make our lives miserable, like allowing a car to be stolen, or someone accessing your credit card, and buying all kinds of raunchy stuff that shows up on your invoice. And things like this make our lives miserable and bring us that place, and we cry out, God, why? Why did this happen to me? Well, maybe it's an attention getter. Or maybe it's a test that God's saying, I want you to trust me in this. I've had both. God has needed to get my attention, so he did something. I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm I'm good. I'm going to repent right now, Lord, because, uh, you know, I'm just feeling convicted. And um, yeah, I'm sorry that I'm a jerk. Or it's something that I'm like, God, I can't let this go. This is something I don't understand. He's like, I want to teach you some things through this. I want to take you through this time of vulnerability, this time of frustration, this time of temptation where you are wanting to launch out in anger in rage. No, I want to teach you to be godly through this. So there are different reasons why God does that. But the point is that God's in control and he can tune us up when we need it. Verse five, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. Going back to that principle that when you're ready to slaughter an animal, you want to fatten them up really good so they taste good. And God's saying, that's what you've done to your heart. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Man, the dysfunction in these guys sounds just as bad as it is in our day. Condemning righteous people, luxurious living, self-indulgent. Yeah, what kind of church do you think they had? It's a church where God was not honored in their hearts of those professing Christ. That's pretty evident. And yeah, they were screwed up back then too. When you read the book of Acts, the primitive church seems so simple and true that we can 
long to go back to this type of church and have things go perfect. But we need to remember, as the church was growing, much of its victories were caused by a whole lot of evil infiltrating the church, and it was chaos. Those faithful servants of God sacrificed everything to preserve the true gospel, as Paul had commanded them in 2 Timothy 2.1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, talking to Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, this happened. So when Timothy read this and it was distributed and people were getting a clue as to, hey, this is what church oversight should look like. Here's some principles. You find those people who are faithful. Those are the ones you pour into and entrust with the word. Not the people that come up and say, hey, man, I am so qualified to do this. It's like, no, you find those people that have a heart to please God first. And those are the people that were entrusted with the word. And those people, they did the same thing. And it's cool to go back and read in church history and see these people standing up, even though it was costing them their lives and their families and everything else. But you realize, man, the church was just as much a mess then as it is now. And we don't want to go back to a first century type of church. Many critical church doctrines were hammered out during these times because a teacher brought in some heresy that challenged the scriptures and caused those faithful men to rise up and say, "Uh uh-uh, this is what this means. And so they would hammer out these statements of faith. And you had heresy after heresy, you had Arianism, Ebionism, Gnosticism, all kinds of different isms. And what's interesting, on a side note, is how many of those ancient heresies suddenly sprang back into life in the 1800s in the U.S. Research Arianism, Ebionism, Gnosticism, and you'll be able to link those with other church movements that had the same fundamental false teaching. And it's scary because people actually believe this stuff, even though they've been refuted over and over again. It's like, oh, whatever, this is what we believe. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Patience is developed through trials many times. So when we are going through something irritating, we can stop and ponder the situation for a minute, wondering, is God allowing these things to happen for a reason? And the answer, in my opinion, is yes. All things happen for a reason. And for the believer, we can claim Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm in a tough situation. Why is this happening? Well, we may not know the reason right away, but what we do know is something good is going to come out of this. It may not be now. It may not be a year from now. It may not even happen during our life. But at some point, something good for the kingdom is going to come out of this trial. And it may just be teaching us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. So exercising patience allows us to go through the trial with a different perspective than those of the world. And this is important in our relationship with God because much of the abundant life Jesus promised doesn't happen right away. It takes time and going through many trials to learn these things. But being patient keeps us on the straight and narrow. Verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The doctrine of eminency, the Lord could come at any minute. We need to always be thinking about that. Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Nobody knows when Jesus will return. We can guess, but what's the point if nobody knows? When it says nobody knows, it means nobody knows. There have been many people that totally ignored this passage for whatever reason, most likely money, and deceived many people into thinking they knew when Jesus was coming back. The amazing thing to me is after they were all proven to be liars, there seemed to really be no outrage. Hmm. 
what we do know, Matthew 24, 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what's the point there? Be ready. Continuing in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So when Jesus comes back, we need to be about the Father's business. We need to be busy doing the things that God has called us to do. But when he comes, there's no time to turn back and say, Oh yeah, you know that thing you've been calling me into for many years? I think I want to do that real quick. Verse 9, another issue in the church that we need to be careful of. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, this is addressed to the brothers, whereas the thing with the rich people was addressed to the rich. This is now the brothers. Don't be grumbling against each other so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Our lives are in full view of the Lord and grumbling against one another, which we all do. We need to tell our brain, stop, I'm not grumbling. Lord, give me peace, give me love, give me wisdom. We continue to grumble against one another. Don't do that because God is our judge. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brothers. It's interesting when you look at that, it says there are seven things that are an abomination to him, and it says, and one who sows discord. It's not the discord, it's the one that sows the discord. So if you want to make yourself an abomination to God, then go around and cause problems and start stirring up trouble among the brothers. That's a great way to get the judge who's at the door to act. Don't push his buttons. Verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So now James is going to use the prophets and Job as an example of those we can look to for instruction on godly character. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Read the last few chapters of the book of Job for God's response to Job and his friend's skewed perspective on the character and reason that God does stuff, which basically they all get taken back to the woodshed over this issue. And God's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And we do the same thing. Well, God did this because of this. And God, you know, we don't know that. What we do know is God is love, God is merciful, but God's also a righteous judge. And sometimes when something bad happens, it may not be judgment in the way we look at it. It may be God maneuvering that person to change their heart and to realize, you know, look, you've been putting yourself on a pedestal for a long time, and I need to take you off that pedestal. And so kicking that pedestal out and boom, they land flat on their back. Which way are you looking? You're looking straight up. So remaining steadfast in those things that God has called us to is very important if we want to please God. So don't be one of these guys that says, well, I believe this is why this happened. And the reason is because I'm so wise, I can discern the thoughts of God. And so don't disagree with me and we'll get along. You know, it's that kind of attitude where I think I'm pretty special and I know things. And God's like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
And James is reiterating a point Jesus made in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5.33. It says, Again, you have heard it said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. So apparently they had a lot of people swearing on stuff. Verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him praise. Anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Probably one of the most clear-cut passages for godly instruction in the scriptures. James 5 is also one of the most neglected, and I don't know why. It's reasonable, pretty straightforward, and simple, yet people seem to skim over it looking for other avenues to meet their needs, and it's crazy. When we're suffering, go to prayer. We should be praying all the time anyway, but when we're suffering, pray, because it's not just that I'm praying and I'm shooting up my petitions to God. In that moment where you're connected with God, that's where God's compassion and mercy will fill you. That's the time when God says, hey, I'm going to lift you up out of this. The circumstances may not change right away, but if you're suffering, connect with God. He is the source of comfort. There's a reason the Holy Spirit was called the Comforter by Jesus. And in these times when we're suffering, our prayers oftentimes are very sincere. They're very genuine. And praying for God's will to be accomplished through the sicknesses will be pleasing to him, and that person will be rewarded in eternity if they were sincere. So if I'm suffering, God, use this for your glory, that kind of stuff. You know, that's hard to do. But when we really commit our lives to Christ, it's like, God, I'm really feeling terrible. But I know my hope is in you. And I pray for this suffering that you would do something good through it while I'm suffering here. Are you cheerful? Remember James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So if you are cheerful, remember where the good things come from and sing praise. Praise God. I think a lot of times people only praise God when something goes really, really good for them. But are we praising him just when we're in a good mood? It's not like anything great has happened. I'm just, it's a beautiful day. Things are good. And I just want to praise you, Lord. Good place to be. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We just did this at church on Sunday. After service, a brother came down and said, yeah, I've got a serious condition. And it is serious. It's a it's something major. And he told me about it after service. And I ran around the building. And I gathered up our people who know how to pray. They get it. They know how to talk to Jesus. And I brought the guy in our midst, and I apologized for not having any oil on hand. And one of the ladies, she says, no, I just brought some oil today. She had made up her own anointing oil, and she had given it out to a couple of people. And so one of the persons that she gave it to ran out and grabbed the oil, came back in and go, here you go. So we prayed for him, and I rubbed the oil on his forehead, and I asked for God's will to be done, and now we'll see what God's will is. And we got to remember that sometimes God's will is not to heal. So the answer is no, or the answer is wait, or the answer is I'm going to use this illness to humble this person and get closer to them. We got to realize that about God rather than, well, I didn't get healed, so I don't believe this stuff. Okay, don't believe it. But if God has moved in your life and you find yourself sick, like James is saying, go call for the elders of the church. And when they're like, yeah, what's going on? Say, I've got this condition and I'd like you to pray over me and anoint me with oil. It really surprises me how many churches refuse to obey this command 
from James. Gathering elders, or in a sense, those mature believers qualified under 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You look at those people, that's what I did. I don't look for people with titles. I look for people that when they pray, God answers their prayers. I'm like, bring them on, man. This is our A-team. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Faith, it's the key to this passage. All this stuff is about building up your faith, trusting in God. When we simply believe in God's word and trust him, we see these things happen. God's will is his will, not ours. That was one of the important pieces to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6:10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There have been many times when God's will was not to heal someone. And I always end James 5.14, that prayer, with asking God for his will to be done, because I know that he has allowed sickness to go unhealed, some to the point of death. And in that moment, God was glorified in some way, whereas it wouldn't happen if that person was immediately healed. Something happened there. You got the answer after the person died. There was a plan, and the sickness was part of God's plan. So was the death of the believer. And this is really hard for some people to accept, but God's will is not always comfortable. But in eternity, we're going to see a lot of those moments where God's answer to the healing was no and realize, oh, something eternal happened here as a result of the situation. But nevertheless, anybody that comes to me and says, I'm sick, can you pray for me? I'm like, let me get my Bible or my phone. Let's go through James chapter 5. You understand that it says if anyone is sick, let that person call for the elders of the church. That's the first thing. It's not an altar call where you say, hey, all you sick people come down here, let's pray for you. Even though I think that's cool to do that, but that's not what this is talking about. The person who is a person of faith, he or she is going to call the elders of the church and say, listen, I want you to pray over me and anoint me with oil in the name of the Lord, according to James 5.14. I believe God is going to do something here and I want to be obedient to scripture. And so we do that. And if God doesn't heal that person, at least what that person has exercised was faith, saying, you know what, Lord, I believe your word. But I also understand that the prayer of faith, it may not be about the illness. Maybe the person isn't saved, and that condition is bringing them to the point where, hey, I am. Remember, at this point in history, they didn't have a lot of doctors. They didn't have a lot of medical technology. You come in with a broken leg, you may die, or you're going to be gimped up for the rest of your life. And so out of desperation, they would come in and say, can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? Okay, well, all right, let's let's go through this. Do you have faith? Yes, I have faith. I have faith in all this stuff. I hope it works, you know. And then all of a sudden, through that prayer and through that anointing of oil and through that faith, God begins to do a work in that person's heart and says, see who I am? I'm anointing you with oil. And oil in the scriptures, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. So anointing someone with oil is like you're pouring the Holy Spirit over them. And that can have a dramatic effect in a person's desperation who wasn't serious about God. Now all of a sudden they're looking at the rest of their lives being crippled and they get serious with God real quick. Okay, there you go. God's using that condition to bring them to eternal life. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So James is now winding down this scourging book (laughs) with a call back to holiness, which begins with getting back to basics. Come clean and pray. And what's interesting about this passage is there seems to be a condition upon healing that if you have unconfessed sin in your life, that will hinder your healing. So confess your sins and you may be healed. And that makes sense. Why would God want to reward us when we're harboring sin in our hearts? And I think about how many men in the church have issues with pornography and how many of them will not confess or pursue 
victory through repentance, and that's turning around and walking the other way, basically. Rather, they hold on to their perversion, and they call it a struggle. And that struggle is not with porn. The struggle is they want to be a pervert, but don't want people to think of them in a bad way. Porn is just simply sin, like a lot of other sins. The question is, do you want to embrace the sin or reject the sin? And many want to embrace it. They like it. They get off on it. They love watching people have sex, and they don't want to give it up. And I'm talking about church people. And rather than admitting, hey, I'm geeking out on porn, they simply say stupid things like, you know, well, you know, I have a porn addiction when they get busted. No, you have a sin addiction, and the cure is crucifying the flesh, like Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the problem with sin, addiction, is simple. The person who claims to be a follower of Christ has this sin issue that they won't give up. They're a liar. They have not crucified the flesh. Or in other words, they have not rejected their carnality and fell on their face before the Lord crying out for mercy. They reject the power of the Holy Spirit, which totally breaks a sin addiction in a microsecond. I've seen this a lot when people are so sick of being wicked and they come to Christ on their knees and they have drinking, they have drugs, they have cigarettes. I have a good friend. He was a bad alcoholic and a bad chain smoker. And the instant he prayed for his tobacco addiction, because that is a physical addiction, it was snapped. He never smoked again. He still had the craving, but he knew in repentance, I'm going to have the craving. Just like with pornography, you're still going to think about wanting to do it. But that power of God broke it. Same with alcohol for him. It was amazing. And for an unbeliever, I get it. Even though a lot of unbelievers have been victorious in various addictions because they know it's wrong and they want to be people of integrity, so they, in effect, they put everything away like this is saying, I've been crucified with Christ, even though they haven't. But the same process, they try to do that. They try to live differently. I want to live. And that's based on your willpower. Some have the willpower to do it. Others don't. But the Holy Spirit is the power. And when we, like James is saying, when we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, there's healing there. And addiction is another way of saying sickness. And how do you get a sickness healed? Here, you confess it and you pray for one another. That's big. It's huge. I got a lot of stories about that, even my own life, things that God just took away in a minute. And some of those things, I'm like, I don't want to give this up. God's like, okay. See, we're walking a life of hypocrisy, get you. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, well, what it means is Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me, basically. It's like, okay, go be against me then. Take the thing that's so precious to you that's evil in my eyes, and you go indulge in it, and let's see where that gets you. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who God used in some pretty radical ways, and he is one of two men in the Old Testament that were miraculously snatched away from the earth without going through the dying process. Enoch was another one. So neither one experienced a natural death. And Enoch's stories in Genesis 5.24, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That indicates that he was just vaporized in some way. God pulled him out of the earth. Why? Don't know. Second Kings 2.11, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah also didn't die. And he's also mentioned in a prophecy spoken by Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's a prophecy that God is not done with Elijah and he'll return. So Elijah was somebody that was very remarkable in the Old Testament. He's kind of the head of the prophets, if you will. He represents the prophets. You have Moses, who represents the law, Elijah, who represents the prophets. And here James is saying he was a guy just like us, but he prayed fervently. And what happened? It didn't rain. 
Go back to First Kings and read that. Verse 18, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So the miraculous was preceded by prayer. God was leading him in all of this. So, But the point was, hey, if Elijah can cause all this stuff to happen through the will of God, then what about the will of God for your life? What can God do through you when you are honest and you pray fervently? Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Why is it so important to seek the will of God? It will set our minds on things above, like in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on this earth. Because when people experience doubt or crises in their faith, this doesn't mean that God wants to send fire from heaven and incinerate them like the event where Elijah called down fire from heaven and incinerated a couple of military units. But rather, it's a time that we can get engaged in the battle for them. And putting these things that James, throughout his letter, has taught us into play, we can see the importance of being real with the Lord and watching out for his children. Because most believers, they're going to distance themselves from God at some point in their journey, maybe many times throughout their life. And some will walk away denouncing God and the existence of God. Our job in this is to love them and show them that love so that they know that we're his disciples. We may not be able to change their heart, obviously. God changes their heart. But John 13, 35, by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love those people who have walked away from the Lord. Be careful how you treat them. And if they're into sin that is condemned in Scripture, especially in 1 Corinthians 6 and passages like that, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, don't tell people they're going to hell. That is one of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion. You don't know if they're going to go to hell. You can reword that a lot of different ways and say, you know, dude, that's something that God looks at and says, if you're doing this, You're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Don't you want to see the kingdom of heaven? But don't use those words, you're going to go to hell, because that's not our place, in my opinion. It's our place to show them that love, show them the scriptures, show them the truth, but it's God's place to judge them. The Holy Spirit can convict a person a whole lot better than we can. So let God do his job. Because the love of God is what this world needs, and we have the opportunity to use it at will. So use it and be blessed. Thank you.